EU Confidential gets started right after this message. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Today's episode is presented by the EPP Group. The EPP Group wants the UE Green Deal to be a European success story. It must protect the planet and bring innovation, security and jobs. This is a very defining moment and a very good day for Europe today. We have decided to grant candidate status to Ukraine and Moldova, and we are ready to grant candidate status to Georgia once priorities will be addressed. Hello, and welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm David M. Herzenhorn, Politico's chief Brussels correspondent, coming to you this week from a crucial summit meeting of the EU's 27 heads of state and government, here in the council building, in the heart of Brussels' European quarter. The leaders have been wrestling over whether to designate Ukraine, as well as Moldova and Georgia, as candidates for EU membership. As you just heard, at the top of the podcast, European Council President Charles Michel and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen the EU leaders ultimately agreed to put Ukraine and Moldova on that path to EU accession in what would be a historic expansion of the club. Georgia still has quite a bit of work to do. Our episode kicks off with our team here at the European Council Summit. We have the inside scoop on how leaders came to this decision and explain the tough road that lies ahead for Ukraine and other EU Canada countries. We'll also talk about how this decision affects other countries that aspire to become members of the world's most exclusive political bloc. Earlier on Thursday, EU leaders also held talks with Western Balkans countries. And you'll hear exclusively from Albania's Prime Minister Eddie Rama later in this episode about his country's prospects for joining the EU. Then we'll turn our attention to next week's historic NATO summit in Madrid and hear from NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. And Florence Gaub will be our final guest. She's the foresight advisor at the Council of the European Union. She shares her analysis of how long Russia's war in Ukraine could last and what that means for Europe and NATO. It's a packed episode and really, really worth your time. But first, let's go to our podcast panel. So we're here at the European Council uh, Justice Lipsitz building in the atrium with hundreds of journalists after a long day. Uh, with us is Lily Beyer, who covers NATO and Central and Eastern Europe. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. Giorgio Liali from our Paris Bureau. Hello, everyone. And Hans von der Bouchard, who is our Chancery correspondent in Berlin. Moin and hello. So the 27 heads of state and government have made a historic decision granting official candidate status to Ukraine, 
a country at war and Moldova, as well as clarifying the membership bids of the Western Balkans, uh, some of whom are not too happy about how slowly their applications have been proceeding. Quite a lot of tension around the long-delayed membership bids of some Western Balkans partners, complaints from angry prime ministers and presidents in recent days, especially about Bulgaria blocking the uh, membership talks of North Macedonia, which changed its name in order to move forward uh, for a potential future in the EU. Tell us about what you were hearing around these conversations. So uh, we heard some very unhappy Western Balkan leaders this morning. We are still waiting to see if there's light at the end of the tunnel in the dispute between Bulgaria and North Macedonia. We're expecting Bulgaria's parliament to uh, make a decision tomorrow morning. So all eyes are on Sofia. But in the meantime, there were, of course, the historic decisions on Ukraine and Moldova. I heard some very, very happy Central European leaders today uh, welcoming the step. And of course, domestic politics also playing a role, right, in especially for Bulgaria and its prime minister. Yes, uh, Bulgaria's prime minister has faced a no-confidence vote. It looks like he will have to resign, at least formally, in the coming days. But still, there seems to be uh, work underway to try to um, at least a bit unblock the situation. And of course, domestic politics of France also at play at this summit with uh, the French president Emmanuel Macron finishing up his country's six-month rotating presidency of the Council of the EU. Giorgio, we we saw Macron try to propose a deal to break through this impasse with Bulgaria. Doesn't seem to have quite worked just yet, but also he's coming off a setback in parliamentary elections, a kind of wacky idea to build a European community that might even bring the UK back in some fashion or another. Tell us about what kind of credibility these ideas have, both at home and abroad. Yeah, well, when Macron commented the decision to welcome uh, Ukraine and Moldova, he kind of showed all the ambiguity behind this idea of European uh, political community. He said a very interesting thing, which is that... uh, We don't all have to live in the same house, but we share the same street. So the idea is that for countries such as Ukraine and Moldova, of course, they have been granted the status of candidate countries, but chances of becoming a EU member state are really, really uh, thin. That's at least the sense that Macron's word gave. And the leaders are back in discussions now talking about this idea of a European community. Do we think that's going anywhere, especially if Moldova and Ukraine already have official candidate status? Well, a new diplomat was saying that there is some kind of enthusiasm among, uh, among leaders as long as this new system doesn't replace the enlargement process. Well, that's interesting because this is exactly what is meant to do uh, according to Macron. And of course, the French insist that there is a lot of consensus around it. But for the moment, what uh, leaders will decide is to just revert to that discussion later on. So nothing concrete for the moment. And we saw you know, a trio of super happy leaders, the council president Charles Michel, the commission president Ursula von der Leyen, Macron come down for their press conference announcing this historic day, trumpeting this movement forward for Ukraine and Moldova. Von der Leyen saying that they have a lot of homework to do for their bids to go forward. Of course, the countries all have to do homework before moving to the next stage of the accession process. But I am convinced that they will all move as swiftly as possible and work as hard as possible to implement the necessary reforms. 
not just... They've tried to stress over and over again, and the commission did this in its recommendation, that Ukraine and Moldova's future, their fate is in their hands. But what we've seen in the complaints from the Western Balkans countries is that, in fact, this process can grind very slowly on a session. It's not always clear how countries can move forward. And there's another twist now, Hans, where the EU leaders in their summit conclusions have given themselves kind of an escape clause, saying not only will Ukraine and Moldova move forward based on their own efforts to conduct reforms and improve governance in their countries, but it will also depend on the EU's capacity, they said, to absorb new members, if we know what that means, which we don't. Well, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has shed some light on uh, what is behind their thinking in recent days. He has basically made clear that the voting rules at the moment at the EU, they're too complicated. Uh, we've seen it with Hungary blocking, for example, an EU sanctions package, holding the entire bloc hostage, uh, sometimes just for um, domestic political reasons. We've seen the same with Poland, etc. So Olaf Scholz is now saying, some other leaders are saying it as well, that they want the um, EU to move from this unanimity vote where each individual country can block a decision, for example, on foreign policy to qualified majority. That means uh, a bigger majority of more or less two-thirds of the EU countries, but not any individual countries can always block. But that is very difficult because you would, of course, need unanimity of all EU countries to even go there. And uh, this is, of course, at the moment, there is no appetite of, among many countries to go that way. So realistically, I would say we're facing a perspective where Ukraine or Moldova might do all the reforms, but the EU isn't doing it because Hungary and others are holding it up and uh, we might not be ready. Indeed, it's a great irony of any institution that works on unanimous consent. You need unanimity to change the rules on unanimity. But we do have this historic moment, a country at war, the first time a country at war like Ukraine, four months now into the invasion, the bigger invasion by Russia, granted uh, EU candidate status, seeing the possibility of a future. And at the same time, how will this play out? Is it even remotely possible that a country at war could become a member of the EU anytime soon? Giorgio, you follow Italy closely. We saw Macron and Mario Draghi and Olaf Scholz in Kiev. A lot of leaders said that visit was instrumental in Ukraine reaching this point where they stood with uh, Volodymyr Zelensky and announced they would back this uh, recommendation to make Ukraine a, a candidate state. Thoughts? Well, yeah, I mean, it was a very strong commitment. Of course, it was made in Kiev, so it has a very strong symbolical dimension. But then when it comes down to details, we knew that, for example, France had discussion and really tried to convince other member, EU members to support Ukraine joining this European political community. So when it comes down to facts, the impression that we get, at least for, uh, from France, is that what France would like for Ukraine would be more to join this alternative institution and not really the EU, for which it would be a very, very long path, of course. And actually, we saw some very good behavior by Zelensky. Of course, there's been some tension between him and Schultz, especially, but also with Draghi and Macron, efforts that they've uh, made, in Macron's case, to negotiate with Vladimir Putin, suggestions in Italy that Ukraine maybe should give up some territory, and yet he buttoned that up, zipped it, was only positive. It helped, I think, to get candidate status. On the other hand, we saw the Western Balkans react really angrily today. A lot of frustration, Lily. Georgia disappointed because like Ukraine and Moldova, it had put through a membership application, didn't get candidate status, has a European perspective, but a lot of work to do. Bosnia is still in that circumstance, and they fought quite a bit, the leaders on language around Bosnia and Herzegovina. Tell us what happened. 
I think over the last 24 hours, we've seen several versions of two paragraphs on Bosnia and Herzegovina, which, um, if you think about it, is actually quite incredible. Um, the leaders of the 27 countries spent a lot of time discussing what to do with this country, and they came up with a classic council fudge, which, of course, includes a phrase that they love including when they can't decide on something, which is that the European Council will revert to the matter, meaning we can't really decide what to do, but we'll come back to this later. And as always, we will revert to the matter, back to this summit, which continues as we speak, back to our stories. Thanks, Lily, Giorgio, Hans. Great to have you here in the European Council. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Before we take a short break, we wanted to share with you the perspective of another country, that's also been trying to join the EU club. All EU governments agreed back in March 2020 to give Albania, along with North Macedonia, the green light to begin membership talks. But negotiations have yet to get underway because Bulgaria, itself a new EU member not too long ago, insists that it first wants concessions from North Macedonia over disputes related to language, history, and identity, as we just discussed a bit in our podcast panel. Politico's Luis Guillot sat down with Albanian Prime Minister Eddie Rama last week in his office in Tirana. As you'll hear, he was pretty downbeat about the chances of any progress being made on his country's bid to join the EU. The president of the European Council, Jean-Michel, came to visit you a couple of weeks ago, and I wanted to ask you, did he give any assurances that you'll make progress and you're going to open and that the EU is going to open the talks with uh, Albania on accession? Yeah. He can't give assurances. No one can. Because it's not about him. Mm-hmm. It's not about anyone else than uh, the Bulgarians for the moment. So what assurance you can give? Mm-hmm. And in that case, did any other EU leaders give you any signals that Talks might open soon. Yeah, what signals they can give? It's uh, not about them again. It's uh, about Bulgaria. They all agree. They all support. They all think that this should happen, and this should have already happened. But uh, their margin of maneuver is limited from Bulgaria. And have you reached out to the Bulgarian authorities? No. I did did some time ago, before the previous conference, uh, council. Mm -hmm. And I know know that uh, it will not happen. You're confident they won't change the position? No, they will not. Why would you think so? Because it's it's a spiral. They have entered in a spiral, and from that spiral, it's very, very difficult to get out, even if you want, let alone that they don't. And so in that that sense, what are your expectations for the upcoming European Council meeting next week? I don't have any expectation. What kind of outcome do you think there could be from this? I think nothing will happen. Albania and North Macedonia will not open uh, formally talks of accession. 
We will continue doing our job as we did, as we already did, and uh, this is uh, what we have to do, and uh, this is what uh, matters in the end. So uh, it is what it is, as Donald Trump would say. And in that meeting, are you going to ask about Albania maybe moving yes. forward alone? Yes, after, yes. If this uh, will be the case, and uh, if nothing will happen in June, we'll ask to be separated from this, uh, from this uh, couple that uh, is lost in translation. Um. And in the broader uh, geopolitical context, how is the war in Ukraine changing the question of EU accession? Is it changing anything for the Western Balkans and your perspective, especially in Albania, of joining no, the EU? No, it is not changing and it will never change. We, we are this not because of, e, of the EU, but because of our history, because of who we are, because of our children. So it will never going to change. We want to be part of Europe uh, fully in whatever shape Europe might be, and uh, we will. This is, uh, this is uh, only a matter of time. It's not a matter of uh, yes or no. Now you're afraid that Ukraine is going to have special treatment. No, I'm not afraid. Ukraine deserves a special treatment. Why, why I should be afraid? No, I mean, then what could be the consequences for your region? No, I, I think Ukraine, Ukraine deserves to be a candidate. Mm -hmm. uh, because Ukraine is uh, doing for Europe something that nobody has done since Second World War. And in that sense... You were talking about um, that you still want Albania to be fully part of Europe. What do you think about French President Emmanuel Macron's idea of creating a European political community? I think he's right, and uh, this should have been done long ago, and uh, this should be done in any, in any moment, uh, because uh, this, is, uh, this is visionary, and this is something that... Uh, Uh, is um, now proven to be the right thing. Now, as we've already mentioned, Rama's fears were confirmed earlier on Thursday. The EU failed to deliver any tangible agreements for negotiations for his country to proceed. Here were Rama's frank remarks Thursday at the conclusion of the meeting with EU leaders, pointing his finger not just at Bulgaria, but the EU as a whole. Bulgaria is a disgrace, but it's not simply Bulgaria. The reason is the crooked spirit of the enlargement. It's totally crooked spirit. And Bulgaria is its most stunning expression. Uh, this, the enlargement spirit has gone from a shared vision of an entire community to the kidnapping vehicle of individual member states. We should note that Politico offered the Bulgarian Prime Minister, Kirill Petkov, the chance to respond to Rama's comments on this podcast. Now we'll take a short break. 
Then we're back with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg and Council Foresight Advisor Florence Gaub. Stay with us. A message from the EPP Group. The emissions trading system is the most important tool to stop climate change. With the ETS, there will be 25 times more emissions saved than with the CO2 emission standards for cars and vans. For the EPP Group, Europe's effort to reduce carbon emissions must bring innovation, security, more competitiveness, and create European jobs. For example, the EPP Group wants the companies that make an effort to decarbonize to be rewarded with additional free allowances to cover their investment costs. On the other hand, the EPP Group wants the companies that make zero or little effort to decarbonize to pay a higher bill over the coming years. The EPP Group wants to make the Green Deal a success story. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. A message from Lloyds Banking Group. Lloyds Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. I cannot tell you exactly how long this war will last, but I just tell the decision makers in NATO capitals, in parliaments, the, the public opinion, that we have a political and a moral obligation to provide support, substantial support, for a long time, as long as it takes. Partly because when we started to provide support, we actually took on some kind of responsibility. You cannot stop in the middle of that effort, because they are in the middle of a war. And it's not as that, that, of course, I realise that this has a cost for NATO allies because it costs, of course, to deliver weapons. It costs something politically. And, of course, they also have the consequences of the sanctions. But those costs are, first of all, much smaller than the cost the Ukrainians are willing to pay for their freedom and their independence. So, therefore, we should be uh, willing to pay our part of that, uh, which is much smaller. Second, the price we risk to pay if Putin gets his way by using military force against the independent democratic state uh, nation in Europe will uh, be much higher than the price we pay today to support Ukraine. That was NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg speaking to Politico's Lily Beyer at a Politico Live event on Wednesday. We'll be sure to include a link to the full interview in our show notes. Stoltenberg is preparing for a historic NATO summit next week as the alliance grapples with the reality of Russia's war in Ukraine. As he says, war is unpredictable. 
But some people in the Brussels bubble are tasked with trying to make sense of what could happen in future scenarios, thinking through options for long-term EU action. Florence Gaub is one of these people. She's foresight advisor to the Council of the European Union as part of the analysis and research team, and she sat down with Politico's Matt Karnichnik earlier this week in Brussels to discuss Russia's war in Ukraine and the upcoming NATO summit in Madrid. You have a new venture. You've become what I might call a futurist. You're consulting the European Council. Tell us about what you're what you're doing now and how this conflict filters into that. So I now work at the General Secretariat uh, of the Council. So that's the body that, on the one hand, organizes the the European Council. So the heads of state actually meeting, or you know, the Foreign Affairs Council and other councils. And uh, we are a unit called Analysis and Research Team. We're at the, attached to the Secretary General, so at the highest level in the in the Council. And uh, well, my colleagues and I, we provide analysis, you know, write research, etc. Very much in line with what I've always done. My role is, well, number one, provide more longer term vision. Uh, so my actual title is Foresight Advisor. Somebody called me the Oracle, but actually I don't foresee the, f- like I can't uh-huh. see the future, but my that, job that's, is to... That's going to be the headline, the Oracle, the European Council's <laughs> Oracle. Yeah. Madame Irma, yeah. you shall meet a tall stranger. No, so my, my role is to introduce more long-term thinking. And I think uh, people often think foresight is that so either it's Madame Irma, somebody who predicts a super wacky future, or uh, somebody who sees things coming, you know, like who saw the war in Ukraine. But actually, okay, that can be part of it. But actually, the role is much more about showing options for long-term action. So it's not trend analysis. It's not, I mean, it can be, but for me right now, when it comes to Ukraine, it would be like, okay, how long can this last? Like, how, what evidence do we have for how long conflicts last, for instance? Because the time dimension, I think, is missing from a lot of these conversations. What are options? Because foresight has to be about action, about what do we do? Which future do we a, either want to achieve or to avoid, you know, what I call offensive-defensive foresight, a bit like a football game, and then point to, you know, the different directions that it could take. So that's one of the things I do. Then, of course, I have a bit of an outreach role, so link to the member states, see what they're doing in terms of more long-term thinking, and also, of course, uh, in the rest of the secretariat, uh, make this method a bit more, actually, it's not a method, it's more a way of thinking, more mainstream, because... Actually, most of what policymaking is about is about today and tomorrow. And time horizons are super short. It's like three to six months when it comes to foreign and security policy. And that's a problem because not everybody thinks like thinks and acts like that, right? So, you, for instance, we know that Asian countries, especially China, but also Japan, they have much longer time horizons. And we know that Xi Jinping says, for instance, you know, I, I want China to stand tall in the world in 2049. Trust me, nobody in Brussels thinks about 2049. I mean, we are lucky if we get people to think about 2030 or about actually the end of the year. So my job is to make people think a bit more long term. And you know, some of these questions actually are the ones that you raise. So where is this going to end? Where do we want it to end? And what happens after? And can we actually think about Russia uh, beyond Putin? Do we have evidence? And I think people forget that actually we have a lot of evidence. You know, we have we have data on demographics. We can do scenarios, and there are ways that you can think constructively about the future, and just people don't really know about it. So, how long do you think this is going to go on? Well, statistically, interstate wars last on average fifteen months. That's a statistic from you know the the wars of the last two hundred years. So you can argue you know there's always outliers. Iran Iraq lasted eight years. Vietnam, um, Vietnam, Afghanistan. Yeah, 
But actually, internal conflicts like civil wars, insurgencies, they last even longer. They last on average 10 years. So cue Syria. So these statistics, I mean, they're not predictors, but they give you an idea of uh, how long things can last. My feeling is that at least this year, so until until the autumn or, or even winter, but potentially, depending on how the strategic objectives evolve, it could also, you know, could have different phases. I always say war is, is more a TV series than a novel, as in it has different episodes. So we're now in episode two, and then you could very well see episode three where Russia controls 20% of Ukraine and then we think actually it's over but then there's season two coming along and actually then you have a low intensity conflict a bit like India, Pakistan that could last a pretty long time which is, I mean, I know that there are different thoughts on this but my feeling is it's better to end the conflict in a clear way and clear doesn't mean weapons are silent it means that both sides have understood that this is over and that can take a little longer, I think, but definitely for the rest of this year, for sure. We have what some people think will be the most important NATO summit in a generation at the end of this month in Madrid. There's great anticipation in some parts of the alliance that there will be a decision to set up permanent or semi-permanent bases in the new member states, which was something that was not done previously. Um, what do you anticipate will come out of this summit? Do you think that it'll be as historic as some people are predicting? I mean, it's already historic because this is a pretty historic moment anyway. So it doesn't even depend on the outcome. Um, I would say it's in moments like that that uh, heads of state are willing to make more radical choices. So I wouldn't be surprised if something like this happens. But I think the messaging is probably as important as that as the actual decisions taken. So, you know, the debate between the member states, between Turkey, for instance, and Finland, Sweden, will that be resolved by then or under what conditions? I think that will dominate the debate as well, not just uh, the decision on structures in the new member states. I mean, a big part of the debate in NATO and also in the EU is how Europe should position itself over the long term towards Russia. This, of course, is a debate that's also in full swing in Germany, but not only in Germany. How do you come down on, on that question? What should be the relationship between Europe and Russia? So I don't know if you know the quote by Carl Sagan, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I would not come down on any side at this point. I wouldn't be able to say, I think this is what we should be doing, because that would imply that this is a simple choice of doing this or that. I think what actually needs to happen is that in various circles, so in the Ukrainian leadership, in the Russian leadership, in the different European leaderships, some strategic questions need to be answered first. And this is where it becomes really deep, you know, because you said it's a, it's a historic moment. It's going to be a super historic year because these are strategic reflections. Uh, who do we want to be? Because it's as much about identity, not that anybody would steal it, but in strategic terms, who do we want to be? What do we want to achieve? What do the Ukrainians want to achieve? What's our role in it? How do we relate to Russia after this? I think it's too soon to say where we're going to end up. Of course, in an ideal, typically European world, I would say it would be great if we just had good relations. We move on from this. Uh, we can forgive and forget, and so can the Ukrainians. But in reality, I think we have to accept that we're actually not at the center of this conflict. The Ukrainians are. And so I think it's 
probably also go our our take on this will be determined very much by their take on it. I think um, I'm sometimes surprised, you know, Germany, the example calls for Ukrainian surrender. Well, okay, we can make these calls, but it's not our choice. It's the Ukrainian choice. And I think accepting that we're not at the center, but at the periphery of this decision sometimes surprises me that people haven't understood that. Oh, you're not the only one that is surprised by the German reaction to many other things that have happened over the past couple of months. Florence, that's all we have time for. Thank you very much for joining us. We'll have you back next year to see if your predictions have been right. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thanks to Matt for bringing us that discussion with Florence Gaub. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. It's been great sitting in the hosting chair this week. As you may have heard in Andrew Gray's final episode last week, you'll be hearing some familiar and less familiar voices from the Politico newsroom hosting the show in the coming weeks. But fear not, because we'll be bringing you the same Politico insight and irreverent analysis that you've come to expect. So be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast wherever you're listening. And if you want to send us feedback or ideas directly, you can email us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm David Herzenhorn in Brussels. Thanks this week to Namratha Prasad, James Randerson, and our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.